Morning, Bethel. <clears throat> so our passage for this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, if you've heard that uh, sermon that mentioned before. The Sermon on the Mount refers to Matthew 5 through 7. So turn in your Bibles, if you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew there, you can turn to page 809 and find it there. And if you wouldn't mind, in honor of God's holy word, join me in standing and I will read and you can follow along. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we are in the middle, actually toward the end of our series called Gospel Culture. So let me just, for any of you that might not have been here or if you're visiting here with us, uh, what is gospel culture? What's this series all, all about? A um, couple of quick quotes from a guy named Ray Ortland, whose book called The Gospel, How the Church Makes the Gospel Beautiful, um, shows the beauty of Christ. A uh, couple of quotes from him that summarize it well. The gospel calls for more than doctrinal subscription. It also calls for cultural incarnation. We would be unfaithful to settle for doctrinal correctness without also establishing a culture of grace in our churches. The more clearly that doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel, is taught, and the more beautifully that culture is developed, the more powerfully a church will bear prophetic witness to Jesus as the mighty friend of sinners. And then he says, gospel culture is just as sacred as gospel doctrine, and it must be carefully nurtured and preserved in our churches. That's the whole point of this series, is that we need to know what we're after, the kind of embodiment of the gospel, not just mental ascent, checking off the box, boxes, but actually living this out. It actually shapes who we are individually and as a church family, as a culture. 
So that actually shapes who we are. We need to work on that. We need to cultivate that. We need to protect that. Okay, so that's, what, that's the what. Now the why. Why is this so important? Well, we want Jesus to be exalted, don't we? We want God's name to be hallowed. Blessed be the name. We don't want God's name to be drugged through the mud. And so often, I mean, how many times have you heard it? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. And, you know, I, I believe in God, but I, I don't want to have anything to do with the church because people have been burned and they've seen ugly things in the church rather than beautiful things in the church. So we want to show the beauty of Jesus and the gospel of grace. It's a beautiful thing. We want to be living proof to people of the power and the reality of the gospel. So, series on gospel culture. This morning is Gospel Mission Emphasis Sunday. So, do those things have any connection? Did I have to, like, go and, and kind of, like, really force something to put those together? Like, oh, I, it's Gospel Mission Sunday. I better find some way to connect these things. No, they're very naturally connected. Okay, this isn't forced or unnatural at all. In fact, we've already touched on it in this series. In John 13, remember when we talked about John 13 and the love of Jesus to wash his disciples' feet, this humble, servant-hearted love? And then he says, you should do likewise one to another. And then Jesus says, they'll know, they'll know you're my disciples when you love one another like this. So it's like a corporate apologetic it's like a, a beautiful, living, breathing, relational argument, living proof of the gospel. Okay? So they're very closely tied together, and Matthew 5 does the same thing. So we're going to look at that passage this morning, but we're going to actually start at the end, and then we're going to go toward the beginning second. Okay? So let's start at the end here and consider gospel mission. There's a little outline in your bulletin if you want to use that, or the slides will be up to show you the points um, along the way. So first off, gospel mission, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. These are not entrance requirements. You become a Christian, you come into the kingdom, you become a disciple by grace, it's a gift, through faith in Jesus. Okay? He's the Savior. We, we don't kind of, well, if, if, you, if you do this stuff enough, then you can get in the kingdom. No. This is a description of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Okay? So, you, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, first century, salt was a a seasoning, and it was a preservative just like it is today, although we don't use it as a preservative maybe as much because we've got refrigerators and freezers. So, but you can imagine back in Jesus' day when there wasn't such things, you had to have salt to preserve meat from decaying and putrefying, right? Well, Jesus is basically saying that we are a preserving influence in society. We're supposed to be. So the world is decaying, okay, ever since the fall, the corrupting effect of sin has its way, does its work. That's the trajectory that the world's on. And so apart from the grace of God, the inevitable trajectory is corruption and devolution, okay? That's where it all goes apart from the grace of God and the influencing effect of the people of God. So we're the salt of the earth. 
Now, for those of you that are, you know, really up on um, chemical compounds and so forth, you know, you read this and it says, if salt has lost its taste, how can... Okay, sodium chloride, pretty stable compound on its own. So salt can't really cease to be salt. Okay, but in Jesus' day, they didn't have the refining technology that we do today. So salt was sometimes a product mixed with impurities. Okay, so the sodium chloride could be leached away, and then all that's left is this white kind of chalky dust that's, you know, see if you're awake, not worth its salt, okay? So Jesus' listeners would know about that. It's worthless. You just throw it out and trample it. So do you see the point here? It's pretty clear. If you have so-called salt and it's not salty, it's worthless. If we're the salt of the earth and we're not preserving and seasoning, then we're not doing our job. We're worthless. We're not fulfilling the purpose that we are supposed to have. So, you know, what would you do if you said, please pass the salt, you get the salt, you put it on your food and your, your food tastes no different? Would you ask for a different container of salt to salt your salt to salt your meat? No. Salt is the influencer of the seasoner. You shouldn't have to season the seasoning. Seasoning that needs seasoning isn't seasoning. Okay, so if the seasoning isn't doing its work, it's out. So it's a sober warning to professing disciples who are not distinct from the world at all or are not influencing like they ought to be. We're called to this. This is who we are. This is what we're made to do. And that's also the purpose of the light metaphor, which comes next. Look at verse 14. You, it's plural, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so... You're the light of the world, and then it talks about a city and a lamp. That's not two metaphors. It's really one because they're both saying the same thing with a couple of different nuances. So a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, you have to think ancient times. There's no electric lights. If there was a city set on a hill, and obviously there's not a bunch of light pollution back then, the light from the lamps and the torches and whatnot would be able to be seen for miles. Okay? Or when someone lights a, a lamp, if they lit a lamp back then, they would do so in order to give light, not to hide light. So we, the disciples of Jesus, were the church of Jesus, were a city. We're intended to be the light of the world. So we should live in such a way that we don't hide that light but we let it shine before others that they may see our lives changed by Jesus, not for our glory, but for his glory, and that they would be drawn to the source of that light because there's just something different about it. It's beautiful. So again, gospel culture is so important here. Who we are is so important. So what does it mean to be light of the world? Well, light in the Bible is oftentimes associated with truth. Okay, so we're the light of the world as we shine with God's truth in his word, in the gospel, but also we shine with that truth as we embody that truth in deed and in attitude. Okay? It's not just cultural niceness. 
You don't need grace to do that. You just need maybe some good parents. So it's gospel words and gospel deeds of justice and mercy. It's love of neighbor empowered by the grace of God, the love of God for us. Even if that neighbor's an enemy, showing the commitment we have to the good of our neighbors, our neighborhood, our city, because of how we've been neighbored by Jesus. So light dispels darkness, helps you see reality. Salt is a seasoning and a preservative. At the same time, though, light and salt can be threatening and irritating, right? It can expose and be blinding. Salt can sting. So depending on the person, they can respond to that light in two different ways. It can be attractive. It can be offensive. It can be compelling. It can be off-putting. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, We may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. So we, he's the light of the world, we're the light of the world, we're to be this countercultural community for the good, the common good of our city. We're, we're like an alternative city within the city. And so our values are going to be out of step with the values of the world around us. So we're not always going to be on the same page with the city, but we are for the city. And even when we're against the city, it's because we're actually for the city. But nevertheless, the world around us isn't always going to receive the gospel of Jesus very well. As we shine with God's truth, we will generate both antagonism and attraction. Okay, so Ray Ortland again, let me quote from him. He sets our expectations wisely. He says, when we find that our ministries both please and provoke, we should not be surprised. Nothing is going wrong. Rather, something is going right. God is spreading the fragrance of Christ through us. The more compelling our churches become through the gospel, the more intense these two reactions will be. We can expect both more openness and more controversy. Going forward with the Lord means that the future will be both more thrilling and more stressful than the present. Let's go. So Jesus was the sweetest fragrance to some, and he was the stench of death to others. And if we're following him, we're going to be the same. Do you know uh, 2 Corinthians 2 where it says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So gospel mission is in the DNA of real Christianity. Salt, light. If you're not seeking to be salt and light, you've got to wonder if you're the real thing. Okay? But don't just wonder. Okay? If you're convicted, if you're kind of sobered by this, don't just wonder about it. Run to Jesus. Turn over. Turn those fears over to him, the cowardice or shame or whatever obstacles get in the way, and ask Jesus to give you boldness and love by his Spirit. So, what is the connection then between gospel mission? Gospel mission is in the DNA of real Christianity. What's the connection then between gospel mission and gospel culture? Well, verses 3 to 12 answer that question. 
Um, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. But before we do, notice that Jesus said that our light is like that of a city on a hill. That's how we are to be the light of the world, like a city. A city is, by definition, a community, right? You can't have a city without a network of relationships. You can't be a city on a hill by yourself. So how's the world going to see the truth of God? How's God going to show the world who he is? Well, certainly, supremely, he did it in Jesus. I'm the light of the world. But also, he does it through us. Not just me, but us. A new community. You, plural, are the light of the world. A city, not just a beacon. He could have said a beacon. He said a city. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So what are these relationships? What is this interconnectedness that is represented by a city? What does that look like? What should, we, what should the world see when we shine as a countercultural community for the common good? What is the culture of that city that's supposed to shine and be salt and light? Well, the Beatitudes unpack it really well. So let's look at gospel culture in Matthew 5, 3 to 12. I'll read it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we're not going to take the time to unpack the, the Beatitudes in detail this morning. The main thing that I hope that we see is that these characteristics are so much of what the world should see as we shine as lights of the world, as we influence and preserve and protect as salt. Okay, so these characteristics are what exerts a preserving influence on a decaying society. And this is totally countercultural community, isn't it? If we live like this, we're going to stick out. We're going to be going against the flow. Because you know what? Our world, by and large, believes in the anti-Beatitudes. Cursed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a pathetic life of self-fulfilling prophecy. Cursed are the sad, for they drag everyone else down. Cursed are the meek, for they will be trampled. Cursed are those always going on about moral reform, for who wants a walking conscience around? Cursed are the merciful, for they will get burned. Cursed are the pure in heart, for they're too naive. Cursed are the peacemakers, for they waste their lives worrying about what others think. Cursed are the religious zealots, for they will be rightly ostracized. Or you could flip it and state it positively. Blessed are the confident, for they make it happen. Blessed are the happy people, for they don't have a care in the world. Blessed are those who take matters into their own hands, for they will get ahead. Blessed are those whose hunger and thirst is satisfied, for they won't be empty. 
Blessed are those who don't take any nonsense, for they won't be taken advantage of. Blessed are the shrewd, for they always see a way out. Blessed are the deal makers, for they will be called upon. Blessed are the tolerant, for they don't burn any bridges. So whatever beatitudes your tribe subscribes to, those will inevitably shape the culture or the atmosphere of your group, the ethos of your tribe. So you know that there's unwritten beatitudes for like every subculture that there is. Just, just think about it. The money lovers. And that could be the spenders or the savers. Right? Right? Like any of you know of, you know, Dave Ramsey or YNAB, you know, or whatever it is, you're like the budgeting people, you could easily come up with their Beatitudes. And most of them would be really good. I'm not knocking. I'm just saying every subculture has its Beatitudes. Foodies have their Beatitudes. Fashion people have their Beatitudes. Hipsters, gamers, urbanites, rural folk. Suburbanites, jocks, musicians, artists, athletes, they're all pointing to the good life, the blessed life, right? And everyone is shaped by their community, their communities, inherited and chosen. So who do you most identify with? Who are you most influenced and shaped by? You and I, we don't even know who we are apart from relationships and community, even if you're an introvert. You do not know who you are apart from your relationships and community. Just, just stop and think for a minute. I mean, we can't even go very far with this, but how much influence the language you speak, your parents, for good or ill, siblings, if you have them, and how that all went and is going, ethnic background, socioeconomic location, education, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how much influence you're a part of a community, and it's affected who you are, big time. Those are community influences. We are irreducibly social. Even in our individualistic Western society, it's just inescapable. And we tend to become like the people we hang out with most. So who are your people? Who are you? Who do you want to be? What is the blessed, the good life to you? If you're a Christian, here's where the blessed life begins. In fact, actually, it doesn't begin with the Beatitudes. It begins with the gospel. We were under a curse. And we rebelled against God. We love the darkness. We fear our dark desires and thoughts and deeds being exposed. We were slaves of these selfish desires in the domain of darkness. That's where we were. We have our little fig leaf covers, you know, but God sees through that, and oftentimes other people do too. Thankfully, he sent his son the light of the world, to take all our darkness on himself at the cross, and he swallowed it up so that we could be rescued. So Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. You know, so talk about poverty of spirit. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. So listen to how Paul states it in Colossians 1. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, the kingdom of light, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the alternative human society. This First 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That sounds like shining with his light, like Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So does the gospel define who you are, your truest, most central community? Or is it the people that watch that particular show you love to watch? Do you find more affinity with them? Or again, these other secondary things. Nothing wrong with watching a show or being a foodie or being a hipster or being, you know, a nerd or whatever. But like the gospel is who we are and the gospel is what shit. What are we doing all together? We're a bunch of, it's like a motley crew, but the gospel brings us together. And if the gospel is at the center, then there's going to be a beautiful unity in the midst of our diversity that is unexplainable apart from the grace of God. So, we need to cultivate this. We need to make sure the gospel is at the center. We need to keep the gospel at the center. We need to cultivate this kind of gospel culture. Because you know what? We're going to be bombarded by all the anti-beatitudes. <laughs> Right? Left, right, and center. That's why Romans says, don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your minds. I was talking to uh, Bill Hughes recently, and he said, we were talking about this stuff, and he said, yeah, imagine if you were adopted from another country. Well, you're, you've got to learn a new language. You wear new clothes. You eat new food. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on, your community totally changes this relational, communal context. And it's going to be hard to actually assimilate into that. And so we've been adopted by our Father, but it's so easy for us to kind of like spring-loaded, kind of go back to our old ways. You know, I've, I've mentioned it before. You have these orphans that get adopted. They're in this loving family, and they're still hiding food in their high chair. So we've been rescued and transferred. We have a new father, a new family. We need the values of this new community to shape us all the way down to our bones. So the Beatitudes, the real Beatitudes, Jesus' Beatitudes, is that you? Is that who you want to be? Are these your peeps? (laughs) Like, are these your people? The poor in spirit people? The mourning over sin and the brokenness of the world, people. The meek, like not taking matters into my own hands, but trusting the Lord, people. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness, people. The merciful people, the pure in heart people, the peacemaker people. The persecution for righteousness' sake, like not going to be ashamed of those people because they're my people. So the gospel is what produces a gospel counterculture that will be a city on a hill in the midst of the surrounding culture. So I hope you see how important this series, the stuff of this series, is to our mission. So let's just talk a little bit about that connection again. Point three, the effectiveness of gospel mission, the degree of influence that we have in our culture, is dependent on the reality of, the vitality of our gospel community, gospel culture. Does that make sense? We've got to be a gospel-shaped culture if we want to be 
a gospel-influencing light and preservative. So who we are is what the world's going to see. So gospel culture has everything to do with mission. I mean, you can imagine if you have one or the other, it's just not going to work. Well, we have this strong doctrine, but our lives are ugly. That's not going to be effective. We really love each other, but we've got, like, no idea what we believe. We don't have a message. So we need to hold on to both. We need to grow in both. Now, I don't know if any of you are thinking this, just the whole city on a hill and salt and light and whatever, like, you know, we're kind of a small church, and what kind of influence can we possibly exert on society? I mean, we're just insignificant. And the society, oh, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, you know, increasingly antagonistic, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Just stop and, stop and think. This is actually intended to be encouraging. Imagine if all true Christians, the churches, were gone from Newcastle County. I mean, we might feel like a small, insignificant minority, although this is like pathetic if we feel that way compared to some places around the world where there's a handful of Christians in the entire country, and this stuff is still true for them. But anyway, here's where we live. Just think about the impact if all the churches and, say, the Sunday Breakfast Mission, supported by so many churches, and a door of hope held up by so many churches, All the daily prayer for this community just gone. Imagine if Urban Promise is gone. All the campus ministry at UD is gone. DCA, IV, Baptist, BSM, it's all gone. It actually doesn't take much salt, relatively speaking, to preserve a fairly large hunk of meat. It doesn't take much light, especially when it's really dark, for a little lamp to shine a great distance. I mean, do we know enough about God's ways and means in history to know that he loves to take the weak and insignificant and multiply those loaves and fishes to impact thousands? So, Let's just not underplay or down, like, um, downplay the impact that our church could have in this community. The impact that <laughs> little things could have over time. I mean, I think we need to have a big vision of what God can do in Newcastle County and beyond to the ends of the earth because we've got a big God. But we've got to realize that so much of how this happens and how influence happens is in very small ways. And those small ways may actually be the primary path, investing slowly and surely over time. Lots of little chops can fell very large trees. So maybe it's, okay, Lord, how how could our community group impact my neighborhood? What could we do? Maybe we just go visit neighbors with a little gift and a smile and see if there's a way we could serve those families or pray for them. Maybe it's a neighborhood barbecue. So what brings all you guys together? Maybe it's weeding at Marion's house 
which happened this past week. And then the neighbor saw all these people like coming in on a couple different days and doing some weeding. And, she, and the neighbor says to Marion, who, who were those people? Oh, those are people from my church. They came and did your weeding for you and then an open door for the gospel. I mean, how can we shine so that Wilmington sits up and takes notice? Not for our glory, but for the glory of God. There's no formula, certainly, but there could be a lot more intentionality and certainly I hope we all have the desire. So how's God going to use the situation with the refugee family that we've been reaching out to? What kind of ripple effects could there be from that situation? I could multiply examples here. We're going to start ministering at the Mary Campbell Center once a month with our community groups to lead a service there and love on those folks. Um, We're thankful that we have a handful of them here, but we're going to bring the service there. Recently, Recently having the opportunity to serve a meal um, Jean Lee and some others, Lori, at Urban Promise. And you'll have to ask them for that story, but it was really encouraging how the Lord used that. So what are some of those ideas? Again, we need to intentionally say, how can we shine in this community? That's what God, <laughs> this is like part of what we're here for. As we receive the bread and the cup and say, how did Jesus make living like this possible? (laughs) And preach that to your heart so that when you do eat and drink, you say, yes, strengthen me with your grace. This grace that I've been pondering and rehearsing so that as I go out of here, I'm going to be a part of shining with your light. I'm going to be helping to cultivate a gospel culture here, and I want us to shine brightly in this community. Shoot me out, Lord. Help me do just that. So let's feed on gospel grace so that we can be shaped into a gospel culture and shine um, just like Jesus said. So Bethel, you are the light of the world. You are the light of Newcastle County. So as you go, as we're sent out and enter our mission field. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you as you do. You're dismissed.